From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. In Colorado, Coors is shrinking and growing? We'll explain. Then he was a bad barista, even an angry one, just didn't like the job. Since I hung up my apron many years ago, I've been studying the way we work in general. And the reality is most of us are baristas who don't want to be. Turns out there's a highly scientific term for the way we feel about work. Meh. Today, rethinking the workplace in our series Disruptors. Then voters will decide whether to set up sports betting in Colorado with some of the proceeds paying for water projects. Like what? And for Halloween, a haunted mansion whose owner has been scaring people since he was a kid. I tell people I retired at 12. I had one job for 50-some years. <laughs> it's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Arguably, no company is more tied to Colorado's identity than Coors. The iconic beer maker, though, has chosen to consolidate its corporate headquarters in Chicago. The move will impact about 300 jobs in Denver. At the same time, the company announced it's investing hundreds of millions of dollars to modernize its golden brewery. So kind of a mixed bag of economic news. To break this down, CPR business reporter Ben Marcus joins us. Hi, Ben. Hey, Ryan. Thanks for having me again. Why this move to Chicago now? How does it benefit the company? Well, some economic development officials I talked to said, look, Chicago definitely has better global flight connections, and Molson Coors is a truly global company. And look, the beer business is tough these days, declining sales, and so they need to save money. It didn't make any sense to kind of have separate corporate headquarters in different cities and different time zones. Yeah, so we should be clear that it had a presence in Chicago. This is a a consolidation. Big beer companies have experienced steady declines in sales because of craft beer, new products like hard seltzer. That's right. So these companies are consolidating in a big way to try to survive. Um, And so that's why you have these corporate headquarter locations that are moving because all these companies are kind of coming together. And part of the challenge here is not just innovating new products like hard seltzers. It's a marketing challenge. And the folks at Coors told me that Chicago is home to some of the great food and beverage marketing firms. And so it makes sense from a marketing standpoint to be there. I think they'll be in good company. Uh, What then should we make of this investment in the Golden Brewery to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars, according to the company? Right. So the company says, yes, it was a difficult decision to move these jobs out of Denver. But they say more people work for the company in Golden than anywhere else globally. And that's not going to change. And so they say hundreds of millions of dollars in investments into the brewery will actually allow them to deliver new products in as little as four months in some cases. And so they're saying that that's the future, being nimble and responding to kind of rapidly changing consumer preferences. Just as they start to figure out craft beer, suddenly they have to respond to things like hard seltzer. And so you really have to make a uh, brewing and canning line that can move very quickly nowadays. Uh, What about Coors Field? Will that name stay on the Rockies ballpark? The company says that it will, uh, and it is kind of a sweetheart deal. They can stay on the ballpark for as long as they want. And the company says that it'll still invest in philanthropy in Denver and along the Front Range, that this corporate headquarter move to Chicago is not going to change that. I think the name Coors is not just the company, but it's the family. How closely involved is and will the family be? 
Yeah, so as part of this uh, big announcement, they said that they would be severing day-to-day ties with the former CEO, Pete Kors, who is, of course, the great-grandson of Adolf Kors, who founded the company. Uh, They said that Pete Kors will retire from his position as chief consumer relations officer, but he will remain on the board of the company, and they said he would occasionally serve as a, quote, ambassador for the company. Well, what's the bottom line, do you think? Is this a win or a loss overall? So losing a Fortune 500 company obviously is not a good thing. It leaves Colorado with nine instead of 10. Um, It impacts philanthropy, like we said, but these companies also have some of the highest paid managers. And economists tell me that they help to stabilize employment through recessions. But economic development people also tell me not to overstate it. Denver's economy is extremely strong, and most people will not notice the difference. And of course, a much more diverse economy. I guess I just hope they bring back Zima. Ben, thanks for being with us. (laughs) Thank you. CPR business reporter Ben Marcus on the changing Coors footprint in Colorado. This story got us surfing around for old Coors ads. And we found one from the early 80s that plays up Coors as anything but a city slicker beer. Once you taste the high country, no downstream beer will do. Coors is brewed with pure Rocky Mountain spring water and its own special high country barley. It's no downstream beer. It's no city beer. It's Coors. A conversation now about happiness at work. Happier people are presumably more productive. They're less likely to quit, and turnover is expensive. There are signs as well that younger workers demand something different from their employers more meaning. This is the subject of Disruptors Today, our series about Colorado businesses that are rethinking the world. The Crankset Group near Denver is trying to rehumanize the workforce. A few years ago, founder Chuck Blakeman told an audience at TEDx Mile High that our culture needs to move from the industrial age to the participation age. Millennials aren't growing up in the shadow of the industrial age, and so they won't put up with just having a job stripped of its humanity. They actually want work, because work is meaningful. A job only pays the bills. And Chuck Blakeman is with us. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Ryan. It's great to be with you. So you indeed say we are moving into the participation age and companies that don't realize it will fall behind. What do you mean by that? Yeah, there's two hallmarks of the participation age, Ryan, uh, participation and sharing. Companies that uh, people want to participate in building a great company, not for you, but with you. And they want to they want to uh, share in the results of building that great company, both in the in the capital of it as well as in the meaning side of it. And that's where we fall short. We want people to participate, but we don't want to share. How is that different from what has come before, though? Well, in in the for for 150 years at work, we were in the what what I would call the factory system model, and most companies are still using that, and it is just a participation model. You participate, and the more I can get you engaged, this false sense of engagement, I want you to be incredibly engaged because I can run off with more money. Well, I I, I, don't, I may not even be able to express my concern about that, but I understand it. It doesn't make sense to me. Why should I be more engaged so you can run off with more money and more happiness? You just make work harder for me so that you can be better off. 
we need to change that. The participation age is upon us. Give us examples of, of changes companies have made to be a part of the participation age so I understand this practically. Like, what are changes in a business model or in an office that reflect what you're saying? Yeah. Well, the number one thing that makes us human is creativity and, and just awareness. But the biggest thing that makes us adult is the ability to make decisions. The fancy term is agent of responsibility. Most people at work have not been able to make decisions. It's always been on the manager to tell you what to do. And so the biggest change that that, uh, great companies are making, hundreds of large ones and thousands of smaller ones, is that they're they're employing what we would call distributed decision-making, where decisions are now being made where they have to be carried out. That that takes me from being a a childlike employee into being an adult stakeholder where I actually can make meaning. And you have some, what I suppose some might call, far out ideas about the workplace. No leaders, no HR directors, unlimited time off. I know. This is about empowering the individual because you think that empowers the company. But isn't that just a free for all? Yeah, it sure, it sure could be. If the cat's away, the mouse will play. A chaos and anarchy, that's the response. We get to this all the time. But that's from people who have come from the factory system model, which, again, runs most companies. It came from slavery, through serfdom, through the military, into the factories, and now we have dental clinics running factory system models. Wait, I just want to say, you trace the current workplace to slavery? Oh, yeah. Hammurabi's code is the first place that the manager is, is uh, mentioned, and it's in relationship to slavery. It makes perfect sense if people don't want to be there, you need to manage them to get them to work. So you need a gun or a whip or the ability to hire and fire and threaten them. You need that in one person. You need that power source in order to get them to work. But if people actually want to be there, if the assumption is that they are smart and motivated, then that no longer needs to be the case. In the TEDx talk you gave, you got the biggest applause when you (laughs) said meetings should be optional. Yeah. But uh, lots of benefits just on this show of our team, for instance, lots of benefits come from when we get into a room together and we spitball and we brainstorm in blue sky. No question. But what if you got into that room and there were eight people supposedly in the room and three only three showed up? Well, what that tells you is that your, meet, your meeting isn't doing the spitballing and the kind of things that those other five people think is meaningful. The problem here is that management as a, as a model does not allow people to follow. There is no leadership in management. It's just probably threat. I don't know if you're following me or if you're behind me because I have a gun. I can fire you. Oh. But in leadership, if in a, pure, in a true organic leadership model, if I call a meeting and seven pe- people show up, I'm a leader. If I look behind me and nobody's there, I'm just out for a walk. Do you have proof that this improves the bottom line and improves? Improves productivity and retention. Well, that's the fun part. I've had a two-year Twitter war with, I won't mention his name, but a very famous consultant who came on saying, if there's ever an airplane built by self-management, please label it. I'm not getting on it. And my response was, well, the eight general or GE aviation factories that make uh, engines, they make about a third of the engines for the entire world. Airplane engines. Airplane engines. Yeah, they're all uh, self-managed. There's not a manager in the whole place. You're going to have to take the bus from now on. The Every measure of productivity, uh, revenue growth, increase in profitability, staff retention, every single one of them is on the side of getting rid of managers. And you believe this appeals to what younger workers are demanding? Yeah. Well, it's the, and the interesting thing is, Ryan, it appeals to the older ones. The difference between the... the, uh, uh, the 
uh, baby boomers like me and the millennials is just simply that I grew up in the shadow of the industrial age. And my mom taught me, shut up, sit down, don't make waves, live invisibly and go out quietly. The millennials did not get that message. So they're actually going to work to make meaning, not just make money. So they, they, they have a different view of it. But we all want this. We're all motivated the same way. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And as part of our series, Disruptors, about entrepreneurialism in Colorado and businesses that are breaking the mold, we're talking about new approaches to the workplace and how that might transform work. I'd like to bring in Josh Allen Dykstra, who is CEO of Helios. Uh, The company says its goal is to create a world where everyone can love work. Josh, thanks for being with us. Nice to be here. And you focused on this topic in a TED Talk in Youngstown, Ohio, Hmm. reflecting on the time in your life when you were a barista, a barista at a coffee shop. Uh, you say you were terrible at it. I can oh. make drinks, but I'm terrible because I couldn't freaking care less about being a barista. And as much as I tried to hide that back when I wore the apron, sad to say it made me kind of an angry barista. And eventually you stopped being a barista. Since I hung up my apron many years ago, I've been studying the way we work in general. And the reality is, Most of us are baristas who don't want to be. Turns out, there's a highly scientific term for the way we feel about work. Meh. (laughs) Meh. In a nutshell, what is your theory, and Helios' theory, about how to stop feeling meh about work? Yeah. Yeah, so we we like to take it pretty far to the extreme and and say people should love work. And uh, this is... uh, at, at first, it seems crazy. It's like, what? I should. I, it's almost like work is a, a bad four-letter word, right, for most of us. It's, uh-huh. We think work is supposed to hurt us a little bit. Otherwise, it's not work. Or I think for a lot of people, there's some love in work, but it's just not consistent. Hmm. I think, yeah, absolutely. And, yeah, so the question is, how do we make that more consistent, right? And, and when you look at love, right, love is a complex idea, or how many millions of songs have been written about love. But when you deconstruct how we get to love as an outcome, it becomes much simpler. And so we look at things like what actually gives you energy at work. And so this becomes part of the Helios model, right? Helios is the Greek word for sun, right? That big ball of energy. And in we fact, all... your title, CEO, is yeah. chief energy officer. Right, right. Uh, we're not talking about electricity literally here, but what, what does that mean? Yeah, human energy, right? It's the thing that actually powers the world, right? Nothing happens in the world without a human having the energy to go do that thing. Uh, and so the more we can actually optimize our organizations, and I believe all, all leaders should be energy optimizers, right? They should be looking at trying to align what actually motivates you to do your best work. The more I naturally align what, what helps you do your best work with the work you're supposed to be doing. With the mission of the company. With the mission of the company and, yeah, with, with kind of your job role, the more effective you are, the more self-managing you can be, the more autonomous and, and just the, the, more, the more you get done. I understand this in principle. I don't know how it looks daily in the workplace. Can mm. you give me an example of a change that managers make or that companies make to effectuate this? Yeah. And so, so really, a lot of it builds on what, what Chuck was speaking about, right? So it's, it's this idea that the more we let people uh, lead Right? The more we, we let people work in the area of their strengths, what gives them energy, what makes them feel motivated, the more they get done. And so in, in practical terms, right, all, all we're really trying to do is say your job should be based around things that give you energy instead of suck it out. 
Okay. Right? There are certain tasks that light you up. When, when you do those tasks, tasks, you're more focused. You're more attentive. It's, this, it's closely related to this idea of flow or what we colloquially call being in the zone. Right? So when you're in, most people know that feeling. Right? It's when time kind of stuff, it flies by, but it also kind of stands still at the same time. And so when I'm in my zone, right, I, I look up from a project and realize three hours have passed and I haven't eaten lunch. I was really engrossed in my task. I was so focused and attentive and really plugged in to what I was doing. When I'm in that zone, I am so much more productive. So there's a really interesting study from McKinsey done a few years ago, and they talked to senior executives. They said, how much more productive do you feel you are when you're in your zone? And the most common answer across these executives was five times. <laughs> I think I get five times more done when I'm in, in flow and in, my, in, my, in, in my zone. Uh, I, I, again, I, this is all lovely. I just don't understand how it is integrated daily into the workplace. Help a manager understand that. Help a worker understand that. And I, I, I'm curious if you think this is uh, applicable beyond white-collar workers. Can this be true for a housekeeper? Can this be true for a parking attendant, a factory worker? Hmm. Yeah, so... The, the, the kind of the misunderstanding that happens in, in a question like that is there's an assumption that everybody likes the same kind of work, hmm. right? And then what, what happens, though, is there really are, there's, there's infinite a variety of work that people enjoy. And uh, when we give people agency, when we give people the power to actually have more directive control over what kinds of work they're doing and how they approach their work, uh, you find that there are people who really, you know, there's people out there who really like to work with their hands. And they want to do that kind of work. And there are people who, who really don't want to be stuck behind a computer doing spreadsheets. And there's people who want to do all sorts of different things. And so with this philosophy, what we're doing is really appreciating kind of the variability of people. It does strike me that this means companies need to know their people better. Right. You need to really have a sense of who your employee is, what motivates them. Yeah. Uh, you've developed a tool for folks to use at work, an app. It's meant to improve how they function in a work environment. Give me an example of how I'd use it. Yeah. So the goal, yeah, the goal with the app uh, is to start to help people um, actually kind of start to think differently about work, right? So we think about this in terms of practice, right? Let's say you want to learn how to play an instrument or play a sport, right? There's a defined kind of practice set. If I want to go learn how to play the piano, I have to learn how to play, do, I need to practice scales and I need to do chords and, you know, et cetera. Yeah. Muscle, um, muscle memory. It, right. Absolutely. When it comes to thinking about work differently, we've got, again, to Chuck's point, we were building on a, a couple centuries of really destructive work patterns, hmm. right? Of the way we think about work is, is really pretty damaging. So the, the employee mindset here is important, mm -hmm. too. It's not just the corporate Absolutely. mindset. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's, it's this idea that all of us need kind of a mindset upgrade, so to speak, when it comes to our work. And our idea with the app is can we actually use technology to help us upgrade our mindset? Oh, give me an example. Yeah. I want to upgrade my software. Right. <laughs> my... Right. Absolutely. And so what we do, we do this in a very similar way to like learning the piano, right? So you, you have a defined kind of practice set, right? There's things we need to practice. Like? And one of those is even just learning what energizes me. Okay. Right. So I need to know. So we, we can all feel this, right? It's a visceral thing. You can feel when you're doing something you really enjoy. But most of us, again, due to this factory mindset, we've been, we've been kind of trained to ignore it. Right, we've been just stuff it down. It's not what work's about, right? Don't pay attention to that feeling. Right. And actually, just if, work it, if it feels good and I'm having fun, <laughs> maybe I'm misbehaving. <laughs> totally, 
Absolutely. That's what I'm saying. Right. So, so really re- kind of correcting our, our mindset to say work should be something you love. Work should be something you enjoy because you get more done when you're in that zone. OK, so helping identify what those things are mm-hmm. is the first step and then yeah. practicing them right. as if I were practicing the piano. Absolutely. Chuck, yeah. just briefly in the last few seconds, what do you make of what you've heard? I love it. <clears throat> yeah, we would say we would say let's define the process, put it on the wall in the, in the form of sticky notes and have people take the sticky notes that really meet with their strengths and what energizes them. Everything gets done, but now we have people actually living in their highest and best. Gentlemen, thanks. I'm inspired by it. Mm, thank you. Thank you. Chuck Blakeman, founder of Crankset Group, just south of Denver. Josh Allen Dykstra, CEO, chief energy officer at Denver-based Helios. Both companies want to make the workplace a happier and more productive place for people. The story is part of our segment, Disruptors where we explore business trends and entrepreneurialism in Colorado. All right, we have a happy update for you. It's about the home of Colorado's first black female doctor, Today, the Justina Ford home houses the Black American West Museum, and it needs some renovations, which are almost assured now because the Denver home won a national contest for historic preservation money. Museum volunteer Terry Gentry told me earlier this month about the home's impressive former occupant. She was quoted to say she delivered a baby on average one every three days for 50 years. So she was packed in a car and driven to their homes to deliver their babies. She also had an examining room here in the home to take care of her patients, and she was always on duty. Right. She didn't do this work at a hospital. She, in fact, turned her dining room into an exam room. Why wasn't she at a hospital? She was granted her medical license in 1902, but denied membership to the Colorado Medical Society and the membership was required to be on staff at the hospitals. And she was finally granted her membership in 1950. Many decades later. She practiced 48 years before she was granted her membership. How much of that had to do with the fact that she was black and a woman? She was told she had two strikes against her, that she was both black and female. She was also challenged with those two strikes when she was applying for her license, but they did grant her license and took her $5. That is Terry Gentry, volunteer at the Black American West Museum in Denver. It's housed in the former home of medical trailblazer Dr. Justina Ford. Money for renovations is now on its way thanks to the Vote Your Main Street campaign. Thirty-three states have signed on to this grand experiment in public health called medical marijuana. Something pharmacies can't carry and doctors can't talk to their patients about. So it ends up looking a lot like any other retail business. But here's the rub. There's not a lot of money to be made on medical marijuana anymore. So where does that leave patients who are on the medical marijuana registry? Find out on the season finale of On Something wherever you get your podcasts. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. When voters decide Proposition DD, they'll be choosing not only to legalize sports betting in Colorado, they'll also choose to place a tax on casinos' profits, and that money would help pay for state water projects. 
But what is a state water project? Climate and environment reporter Michael Elizabeth Sackis has the answer. The state needs money to implement Colorado's water plan, which aims to address our future water needs. With climate change and population growth, the state predicts there will be a gap between supply and demand of water by 2050. It envisions water projects large and small across the state, and funding from DD would help get those projects done. Lauren Riss is with the Colorado Water Conservation Board, the group in charge of the water plan. There are about five different categories of water projects that we can use that funding for. Water storage and supply, conservation and land use projects. Agriculture, engagement and innovation for education, and environment and recreation. And this isn't just about saving water for use in Colorado. The state is obligated through water compacts to share Colorado water with 19 other states and Mexico. Nearly 40 million people rely on the Colorado River system. Tax money from sports betting could also be spent on making sure the state complies with those compacts. We are obligated to send a certain amount of water downstream to other states. And in situations where we're in a sustained drought, that can be really difficult to meet and potentially uh, pretty expensive for the state and also for water users. Riss says her agency has been able to kickstart the grant program, but it has no dedicated source of funding. That's where DD would come in. For the money they've been spending, most of it has gone towards storage projects, dams and reservoirs. The water plan says more storage is needed to close the supply-demand gap. That could be new dams, but Riss says funding can go to old ones, too. Is there a way to maximize the use of our existing reservoirs to increase the supply capabilities of the existing buckets that we have out there. Dams and reservoirs have long drawn opposition from environmental groups, but many are supporting the water plan and Proposition DD, including American Rivers, the Environmental Defense Fund, and Western Resource Advocates. They believe the water plan finds the right balance with water management. But Wild Earth Guardians has come out against DD, and a committee called Coloradans for Climate Justice has formed an opposition, arguing the money would be a slush fund for the state to spend on a, quote, all-of-the-above plan for water management. Mark Squalacci is a professor at the University of Colorado Law School. His focus is on water resources, law, and policy. He says he's glad the state has worked on a water plan, but he thinks it's too protective of the long-standing system called prior appropriation, which basically says whoever was using the water first in a, quote, beneficial way, that water is theirs. There are a lot of, frankly, somewhat wasteful uses of water that have been allowed to continue for quite a long time on the grounds that those water rights are protected under this prior appropriation theory. Squalachi argues that these old practices aren't good at promoting water conservation. He recognizes there are traditions and political forces at play. But as we face more demands for water and the need to manage our water better, I don't think we can really avoid paying attention to things like the beneficial use doctrine and doing a better job of conserving our water resources. Scolacci says he'll likely vote no on Proposition DD. He doesn't think the engineered solutions it envisions are what's needed to address Colorado's water issues. Why would we be building new projects at the cost of hundreds of millions of dollars to take more water out of this very fragile and and threatened uh, system. It doesn't really make any sense to me. Hannah Holm comes at this from a different angle. Holm is the coordinator of the Water Center at Colorado Mesa University and has used state water money to educate people on western slope water challenges. Because we share this water supply with municipalities and farmers on the eastern slope, 
Western Slope folks have a strong interest in having that water on the Eastern Slope be used as efficiently as possible because that can reduce the overall demand on the water supply that we share. She argues a reliable revenue stream for the water plan, like from Proposition DD, would help support the state's efforts to address important water issues. A greater recognition that agricultural uses, municipal uses, recreational uses, and environmental needs, they can't really be compartmentalized. They're all, you know, on the same streams. Even if Proposition DD passes, it wouldn't be enough to cover all the needs of the water plan. The state would be capped at collecting $27 million a year for it. But it needs $100 million a year over the next 30 years to achieve what it wants to. I'm Michael Elizabeth Sackis, CPR News. Let's answer a listener question about Prop DD now. Douglas Crawford wonders if sports betting will hurt the Colorado lottery. And remember that the lottery here pays for public lands, open space, and recreation. Well, here's lottery spokeswoman Kelly Tabor. While we may see a little bit of a dip in sales because folks are maybe changing the way that they spend their entertainment dollars, we're not anticipating any huge drops in sales. And she bases that on past experience. When Wyoming passed their approval to start a lottery of their own, we did see a little bit of a dip in sales, but nothing too crazy. When marijuana was introduced, same kind of thing. Some of those entertainment dollars that had been going to lottery were maybe diverted to that. And I mean, folks who really love to buy a scratch ticket or really love Powerball, they're always going to play those games. Kelly Tabor, spokeswoman for the Colorado Lottery. It's Halloween, time for a good scary story. But which one? Well, here are a few names you might not associate with horror. Louisa May Alcott, Harriet Beecher Stowe, Edith Wharton. And yet, during the 19th century, the golden age of horror, women were prolific. And their stories are collected in an anthology that came out earlier this year called More Deadly Than the Male, Masterpieces from the Queens of Horror. It's edited by Graham Davis of Lafayette, Colorado. Graham, welcome back to the program. Hi, great to be back. Thanks for having me again. Besides Mary Shelley, I think it's the men who've gotten the most attention. Edgar Allan Poe, Nathaniel Hawthorne, Bram Stoker. How often were women writing horror stories in the 19th century? Quite a lot more than people think. Uh, And actually, after the book had gone to press, I found a story, uh, I think it was on the BBC, which claimed that up to 70% of horror in that uh, period was actually written by women. Did that surprise you? Uh, Yes, absolutely. Like you, I'd heard of Mary Shelley, but the others I I knew far less well. And as you say, uh, Edgar Allan Poe and uh, M.R. James in Britain and various others, the men uh, dominated the perception of the genre. So many of the names in your anthology are either unfamiliar or just so surprising. I mean, Harriet Beecher Stowe, author of Uncle Tom's Cabin, wrote horror. Uh, Same with Louisa May Alcott, author of Little women. Why is it that you think women were so prolific in the genre? There wasn't very much an educated lady could do in those days. And some of the authors in my collection needed to support their families. They were widowed or abandoned or had uh, suffered some other mischance. 
and being ladies of uh, middle class or better and uh, educated, it simply would not do for them to work in a shop, even if they'd wanted to, or a factory, they would have been prevented. Whereas the uh, writing sort of got grandfathered into acceptable behaviour under the, the heading of literary and artistic pursuits. And so it gave them a chance to make money and support their families. And others, of course, um, and the ladies of uh, more stable situations, it was an outlet for them because uh, there was very little that a, a lady was allowed to do in those days. And this means, though, that uh, the better-known female authors of that time were doing essentially a crossover. They were writing in various genres, including horror. That's true. That's true. It's it's important to realize, I think, though, that the concept of literary genres was really in its infancy at that time. Oh. It began to solidify during the uh, the late nineteenth century, with the uh, the publication of, of dime novels and certain types of magazines, but it it didn't get to be a, a hard distinction uh, until the early twentieth century with the early pulps, and so uh, writing was writing. And as you mentioned, uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe, I don't think she set out to write ghost stories, but she was a great New England regionalist. And some of those New England regional stories she wrote just happened to be ghost stories. I'm glad you mentioned New England because uh, several of the stories in this anthology come from New England and use a very, very specific dialect that's, you know, not that easy to read. It can be as challenging in some cases as Shakespeare. Yes, it can. It's um, particularly for a modern reader. Uh, I think the practice of writing in dialect in a a sort of semi-phonetic style was something that died out during the second half of the 20th century. It was perhaps seen as um, condescending at best and discrimination at worst. But uh, it was a very popular thing. You'll see certain uh, similarities with um, Sir Dickens in some cases where he tries to portray a thick Cockney accent or a Scottish one. Well, uh, let's get into the horror itself. Do you think that there is a different quality to horror from the women than from the men, a different perspective? I I definitely think there is. And and one must be careful here not to stereotype or generalize. Yeah you know, and and lump men authors, male authors in one basket and women authors in another simply on the basis of gender. But I do find on the whole that the the female writers have a much lighter, defter touch with horror. I find Poe can sometimes be a a little sort of overcooked for my taste. (laughs) Uh, Whereas uh, to compare him to, say... um, Vernon Lee, who was actually born Violet Paget and wrote under a male pseudonym. They both treat with similar subjects. Uh, I mean, the story in, in my book, The uh, the Hidden Door from Vernon Lee, has certain similarities to uh, Pose the Telltale Heart in that it deals with the psychological effects of guilt. But Lee's touch is much lighter and much more much more psychologically in, informed. And I find this to be the case across the board with the uh, the ladies who wrote horror. In fact, in some cases, it's hardly visible to see any supernatural elements at all. 
I really enjoyed The Hidden Door. Again, a Violet Paget, but who wrote under the male pseudonym Vernon Lee. And Paget herself is such an interesting character. Just tell us a bit about her life. She certainly is. She was British, but born in Italy to the son of expatriate par- to the expatriate parents. And she grew up surrounded by Renaissance art and culture, became an expert in that field, published several books um, on Renaissance architecture and music. She was an out gay woman, which was exceptional in those times, sometimes wore what was characterized as male clothing. And, you know, she is best known today for her horror writing, but uh, it was only a small part of her output. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're talking with the Colorado author Graham Davis, who has edited an anthology. It's called More Deadly Than the Male, Masterpieces from the Queens of Horror, and it focuses on 19th and 20th century female horror writers. I think my favorite story um, has to be Lost in a Pyramid by Louisa May Alcott. And I understand that it was way ahead of its time because Egyptomania, this fascination with Egypt, didn't really take off until the 1910s and 20s. But my goodness, I don't think anyone associates Louisa May Alcott with the birth of the mummy as monster. (laughs) No, that's right. And, And actually, it all... The discovery of her story is what started me off on this book when I was researching for my previous anthology, Colonial Horrors, uh, which you and I talked about uh, last year, I uh, I just came across this and I thought, wait a minute, Louisa May Alcott wrote a mummy story? Yeah. <laughs> and and then I, I started to look around. I, I couldn't use it for that anthology, obviously, but I put the thought aside and then I discovered more and more Harriet Beecher Stowe, Edith Wharton, uh, and... Um, you know, the more I looked, the more I found, and, and that's how this was born. Tell us just briefly this story of Lost in a Pyramid. It, it reminds me of a much darker Jack and the Beanstalk. Yes, that's a, that's a very good way of looking at it. Essentially, uh, a young couple touring in Egypt, which was quite popular in the 19th century. Certainly, Egyptomania didn't reach the heights that it did in the 20s after the discovery of uh, the tomb of Tutankhamun. But um, it was from the sort of mid-19th century on quite prevalent across Europe and North America. So this... Uh, Gilded Age couple are wandering Egypt and they get uh, one, uh, yes, the male uh, character gets lost in a pyramid with his companion and um, in order to provide light to uh, find a way out, actually pull down a mummy from a niche and set fire to it. Um, Mark Twain actually had a, quite an interesting story about mummies used as locomotive fuel in Egypt at that time. Because there were just so many of them and they're covered in pitch and they burn quite well. Horrifying to the modern mind. Anyway, out of the, uh, the wrappings of this mummy comes a little box filled with seeds. And there's the usual subtext about the pharaoh's curse and uh, all of that. And so the fellow's showing his girlfriend this uh, this box of seeds and telling his story and then in the second half of the story they each independently decide to plant one of the seeds to see what happens and uh, this leads to some terrible results i'll say no more than that truly horrific i mean the imagination 
of Louisa May Alcott in this story, Lost in a Pyramid, has just stuck with me. And it makes me wonder why the women in your anthology just weren't better known for their horror writing in about the last minute here. I think, honestly, it's because most of the short story market in those days was uh, focused on magazines and newspapers, and it was a far more ephemeral medium. It was uh, rare for uh, a woman's uh, work, particularly horror stories, to be anthologized in a book the way that Poe and Dickens did with their original magazine and newspaper publications. And sadly, that, that seems to be the case. The newspapers and magazines have, have been lost to memory, whereas the books are a more permanent medium. And so some of these ladies have just sunk into undeserved obscurity. Maybe your book changes that. Thanks for being with us, Graham. Thank you very much, and uh, I hope it does. Author Graham Davis lives in Lafayette, Colorado. We spoke in April. His anthology, More Deadly Than the Male, collects horror stories by women in the late 19th century. Frankenstein and Dracula have nothing to you. Jekyll and Hyde join the back of the queue. This Halloween marks 51 years of the Ranky Brothers doling out tricks and treats at their haunted mansion in downtown Littleton. The two have been obsessed with scaring folks since they were kids. Here's the older Ranky, who's pretty much the instigator of the two, telling their story. My name is Greg Ranky. I'm an owner and co-founder of Ranky Brothers. It's a costume and Halloween superstore. And we've been around for 50 years, and our big slogan is, it's not just a store, it's an adventure. Welcome to our humble haunted mansion. At nine years old is when we built our first haunted house. How it happened is we went fishing, and I caught a shopping cart. (laughs) That's how good of a fisherman I was. Well, I took the shopping cart home, cleaned it all up, we hung up blankets in the basement of my parents' house. My father's a Marine. He had a footlocker. I made a coffin out of that. My oldest brother had a skull, stuffed some clothing. We had an old rubber mask, and we hooked up some strings. And then on the front of the basket, my brother Chris, we hooked a strobe light up. And then we charged the neighbor kids during Halloween night a penny to come down. They got in because I wanted to make a ride. Made them sit in the basket, and we pushed them through, and Chris would feed the extension cord while I pulled the strings. That was our first haunted house. We made like 27 cents, so we were on our way at that very point. But that's how the haunted mansion started. Children's tours. Just send the monsters to lunch, turn on the lights, and let them see. Let them touch, feel, let them push the buttons, make the fog, and let them see the difference between fantasy and reality. Uh, so the haunted house was kind of scary, but I didn't freak out. It was really fun. First time going through, and I now want to go through the night tour. We don't do blood and guts. We don't chase you with knives or chainsaws. We have illusions. We have animatronics. We have actors. For the crime of witchcraft, we find you guilty. Guilty. We don't depend on just the cheap thrill because it's I don't think it's really that scary. So we spend a lot of money building full sets. So it's like going through a movie set or the back lot at Universal Studios. Okay, you ready? First couple of rooms, we make it kind of high schoolish, not really scary, and then people let down their guard. 
and then after we get them in deep enough, they can't just turn around, then we tear them up. <laughs> when you first come in, the doorman tells you to be respectful. Don't touch the props. They won't. Don't touch the people. They won't touch you and stuff. Well, as soon as you tell people, don't touch things. They touch things. So this is our room of touch, and this is where we usually get them over it pretty quick. For instance, when they come in, they'll start checking these doors. See, this door doesn't open this way, but the monster hears you doing it. Then he opens it this way, and he comes out at you. But the best one is they now see that nothing really has done a whole lot to you. But then they come over here and they open this one, and then you know. Don't touch. <laughs> this is one of the, the funnest rooms. This is the Toontown. I just love the buildings moving, the clowns, everything about it. It's like walking through a cartoon. This next part, I'm going to let you go first. Oh, gee, thanks. You're welcome. Wow. Okay, this is crazy. It's a vertigo machine. It'll mess you up. What you see with your eyes and what your brain is telling you that you're stable doesn't compute. So your brain is actually having a problem right now trying to visualize and feel what it actually, your equilibrium. That's why you want to lean. The floor is level. You can walk through, but they all are, they're fighting their thoughts is all it is. Uh, I'm wishing I hadn't had a big lunch before <laughs> the, oh my gosh. My father and my mother decided to take my brother and I, Chris, to the uh, Disneyland. So we're like 12 years old, and we go. the first ride we get on is Pirates of the Caribbean, and it's a little china cabinet there that they had skulls on. My brother and I were staring at them. My father walked up and said, would you like one? I said, yes. Came back to Denver, and I bought a china cabinet for $5. And I had some plaster pair of skulls that I could buy cheap, and I put them on the china cabinet and sold them at the end of my haunted house. Well, to this day, the china cabinet's in my store, sitting right here with all the skulls. And I've sold tens of thousands of dollars of skulls off that $5 cabinet. I tell people I retired at 12. It was great. I've done this all my life. In fact, if something were to happen, I'm not sure where I'd go. They'd kind of go, where have you been? I, I have no resume. You know, there's nothing that says I was here, I was here, you know. I had one job for 50-some years. <laughs> Chris, is all, he and I, he's 18 months younger than me, so we've always been together. When he went to college, he was going to study to be a doctor, and he was in pre-med. And we started getting so busy, I said, you want to keep this going, or what do you want to do? And he said, yeah. So here he is, and we've been together ever since. So it's great. I got to grow up with my brother, and basically he's my day wife, I guess you could say. <laughs> this is the dancing skeletons I told you about, which is awesome. My staff, we go and we'll have a beer, and we'll say, let's make skeletons dance. Well, how are we gonna do that? I don't know, but let's go do it. Then we come back and build it. These are actually spinning really fast. The strobe light catches them like a picture, like a stop frame. That's how you see them dancing. But if you turn this off, if you turn on the lights right now, these guys would be spinning so fast you can't really even see them. Those types of ideas, and what's great, is we all get to be kids again. We're all like 12 year olds is what we are. And we're just like, hey, let's build a treehouse and go play in it. Would you travel 25, 30 miles to go to a costume store? No, 
But here they do. In fact, we get people from Laramie, Wyoming, from New Mexico. They come here to go through the haunted house and then to shop because it's like a whole adventure. They get everything done here. The haunted house is a great hook for a costume store. We started out with like 10 costume rentals that I made. And uh, my mom was a great seamstress and she taught me how to sew. And what's interesting, she, uh, she believed in me. All those years when people thought I was nuts or kind of goofy. In fact, I got spanked at school because I made a monster out of clay and they sent me to the principal. He spanked me, then sent me to the counselor who told me I'd be nothing more than a garbage collector. But both my mom and dad never said anything bad. In fact, they supported everything we did. They used to work the ticket counter together. And my dad still does. He's 87. He sells the tickets up here. He's kind of upset that we got internet sales now. He says, you're taking away from my work. <laughs> I said, Dad, it's be easier on you. You're a little slower anyway. It's never perfect, but to the rest of the world, they don't really notice. So the day that I walk through and go, this is perfect, probably be the day that I die and they'll wax me and stick me inside there, you know? <laughs> Ranky Brothers owner and co-founder Greg Ranky, and you heard CPR's Michael Hughes as well, who went to frightening lengths to produce that story last Halloween. This year, the Haunted Mansion in Littleton is open through Sunday. You can see photos and video at CPR.org if you dare. <laughs> The first in line and the wolfman came up next. Dracula was a doing his stuff. I breathe in down my neck. Jump back, make tracks. Here comes the hunchback. Better get out of his way. Faith Happy Halloween. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. <laughs>